Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving is just a few days away, right? And I hope to, hear, uh, hope to see you here on Thanksgiving Eve, right here in Walker Hall at 7 p.m. We're going to have a night of worship. It's going to be a great night of singing and giving thanks. And we're going to have a, a bunch of people come on up and, and give a, a little bit of word of thanks from their own lives. And uh, we'll have some fellowship time afterwards. If you can't make it uh, Wednesday night, please join us over in the sanctuary at 930 on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, it's going to be a great time to worship God and give thanks together as God's people. But Thanksgiving is coming, right? It's a few days away, and right after Thanksgiving is Christmas, coming right behind. And we're moving into that time of the year. It's a good time of the year. It's a great time of the year. It's a year filled with joy, but it's also a time of year that can get pretty hectic and crazy, right? Anybody experience any hectic, hectic craziness during the holidays? Yeah, someone in the back's like, yes, Pastor, for sure. I'm with you. It gets a little crazy during this time of the year. And I was listening to, um, I listened to this thing called the Daily Audio Bible. It's like a year-long journey through the Bible uh, in a year, and uh, so we're about 10 and a half months in, and the guy's name is Brian. Brian, he, he reads the Word, and he has a little devotion at the end, and he was telling all the community that listened to this, he said, it's going to be a hectic time of the year. It's going to get crazy in the next month or a half, and he said, I'm telling you, I'm encouraging you guys. You've been reading the Bible for 10 and a half months. You've got to keep on, press on, continue in the joy, and he says, refuse to be distracted by the craziness and focus and embrace God, embrace his word and his story for your life. Let your image of him and your view of him be defined by God himself and his great plans for you and his story in your life. And so here we are. This morning, I want those words that Brian encouraged me to encourage you, and I hope you hear to refuse to be distracted by the craziness of the season and focus on God. And I want to encourage you and I want to commend you. You're kind of doing it right now, right? You're here this morning, the Sunday morning before Thanksgiving. You're starting off this season right. You're spending time with God's people. You're spending time with God's word. You're experiencing his mission. I mean, what happened just a moment ago with those two little ones being baptized? We are experiencing the mission of Jesus Christ given 2,000 years ago, lived out in us and through us as God's people. We're making disciples this morning. And that, my friends, is awesome. We baptize those two beautiful daughters of God. They are loved, they are blessed, they've been given a huge, abundant grace, a gift, an inheritance. They've been given new life in Jesus. They've been given light in a dark world. They've been washed clean and they've been joined with Jesus in a powerful way. As we consider their baptism, we can't help but consider our own We remember our own baptism, our own baptismal identity. We remember that we are disciples, and being disciples involves being baptized, involves embracing that identity, but it also means learning the ways of Jesus. And we don't just learn the ways of Jesus with our minds. We learn the ways of Jesus with our entire lives. And so we're given a text this morning to consider. As baptized disciples of Jesus 
who are seeking to live the ways of Jesus, who are learning his ways, not just with our minds, but with our whole beings. That involves our intellect, involves our emotion. It involves an attitude of humility before God. It involves our attitudes and our perspectives, our perception of God and his mission in the world. It involves humility. And it involves living and doing certain things in our lives. And so here we are. We kind of finished up this fall. We did a big, long series on, on the Reformation, Reformed. It was a great life group series, too. We celebrate that. We kind of did our own thing. We had a bunch of churches joining us, but now we're kind of jumping back into something called the lectionary. And the lectionary is a, is a bunch of uh, verses that are appointed for the church year. And many Christians throughout the world, millions of them are considering the same text that we are this very morning, focusing on the gospel of Matthew. And in this part of the church year, we are kind of focusing, as we just sang, on that glorious day. We're focusing on what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back again. And Pastor Nathan, last week, he unpacked that sort of watching and that sort of waiting attitude as we're looking for Jesus to come again, to watch, to wait. And in this week, Jesus kind of speaks into that situation. And the more I read our parable for this Sunday, the more I realized that I don't completely understand what Jesus is talking about. And it's kind of refreshing in a way. I think it's something for us to highlight for all of us today because we will never be able to completely understand God's word. And I don't think that's the point. The point is not, the goal is not for us to completely understand with our minds what God is saying. The point is for us to know that God is trying to speak into our lives through his word. Right now and throughout our whole lives from the beginning to the end. God in his word, he communicates to us. And communication is conveying meaning and transformation, trying to deliver words into our lives that guide us. And so these words that happen in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And he's up on Mount, Mount Olives, Mount of Olives. And the disciples, they come to him. They're his followers. They're his right-hand man. They're his life group in many ways. They come up to him, and they're starting to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell us about the end of the age. Tell us about when the Son of Man comes. Tell us about when you come back. And so he starts to teach them. I mean, if you open up the Bible there, it's all read for like two chapters. It's Jesus teaching, Jesus talking. He's talking about beware of those false teachers. There are going to be some people come and saying some crazy things. Do not listen to them. There are going to be people come and say that they know the day and the hour. They're going to predict exactly when God's going to, when Jesus is going to come back, the Son of Man's going to come back. And they don't listen to them. He's saying, you've got to be ready. Watch and wait. And then comes our text in the midst of Jesus' speech. And at first when we see this text, and you may have heard it before, it seems to be a text about productivity. As Americans, we like that. We want to produce. We want to pull up our, our bootstraps. We want to get into it. We want to get some stuff done. But I think when we read this text and when we look at it, we're going to see that there's a little bit more to what Jesus is conveying to us today. So Matthew chapter 25, it's kind of a Bible study this morning. It's going to be up on the screen, but you might want to open your Bibles or it should be there also in your bulletin. You can follow along. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 says this. So Jesus is speaking. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Now, when he's talking about it, he's talking about the end of the age. He's talking about when the Son of Man comes. He's the Son of Man. So he's talking about when Jesus comes back. He says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. We're going to find out that this is no small chunk of change here. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to entrust my wealth to anybody, right? 
So this guy is entrusting his wealth to his servants. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, continues on. He says, trust to his servants. Then in verse 15, he says, to one, he gave five bags of gold. So let's stop right there. The translators are translating bag of gold. In the Greek, it's this word called talent. You may have heard it, the story of the talents, the parable of the talents, or the parable of the bags of gold. But a bag of gold, you know, we don't really understand what that is, right? I mean, how many of you have bags of gold at your house, right? Yeah. Chris does, all right. I'm not talking about the Knott's Berry Farm one, you know, that little tiny one, it doesn't count. That's fool's gold, all right? We don't even know what that means. I mean, we don't have bags of gold lying around, right? So if we were to translate that into modern times, and we could look at uh, Southern California in 2015, in Orange County, the median household income in Orange County was $78,428. So if I round all that up, basically, one talent of gold equaled about 20 years of labor, okay? So basically, one talent of gold in Orange County terms, one bag of gold equaled $1.5 million, right? That's a significant amount of money. Two talents of gold equals about $3 million. Five talents of gold, $8 million, okay? So with that in mind, we read verse 15. So to the one, he gave five bags of gold, basically $8 million bucks. To another, two bags, three million. To another, one bag, 1.5 million, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. So these guys have been entrusted with a lot of money. This is no small uh, amount of change. They all would be considered rich in our eyes. Verse 16 continues on. It says, the man who had received five bags, basically $8 million, went at once and put his money to work and gave $8 million more. So also the one with two bags, $3 million, uh, gained $3 million more. But the man who had received one bag, $1.5 million, he went off, he dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So remember, the disciples are asking Jesus about what's it going to be like when the Son of Man comes again? What's it going to be like when you come again? Verse 20 continues on. The man who had received five bags of gold, that's eight million, brought the other eight million. He said, Master, I love this right here. Master, you entrusted me with eight million dollars, five bags of gold. See, I have gained eight million more. His master replied, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. That says a little bit about our God, right? Eight million dollars is a few things for our Lord. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's joy, his happiness. The man with the two bags, the three million dollars also came. And master, he said, you entrusted me. With $3 million, two bags of gold, see, I have gained $3 million more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And at this point in the story, the parable is looking pretty good. It's looking pretty, pretty nice. It's looking pretty happy. Things are going along uh, really well. And then things sort of change here in verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came, 1.5 million bucks, right? Master, he said, I knew. The first two guys said, Master, you entrusted me. Master, you entrusted me. 
position of humility, a position of honesty, a position of recognizing what they had been given. But this guy doesn't say you. He says I. He says I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not uh, sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I knew. He's basically saying his master is a thief. He's basically saying his master is bad. He accuses him. He assumes that he knows about him. And this is where we begin to see a completely different attitude and perspective toward the God. Instead of seeing the master as giving something to him and entrusting him, giving him a huge honor, he views the master as hard, as harsh, as fear-inducing. And so in 25, he says, so I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Could you imagine putting $1.5 million under your mattress, right? That's basically what he did. He went out and dug a hole in the ground, put $1.5 million in the ground. I mean, at least you could put that in a CD at 1%, right? I mean, and get something going. And basically, that's what the master says. He continues on in verse 26. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I, quote, unquote, harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Right? He kind of challenges him there. And he says, well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You know, a CD, 1%. At least you could have gotten something. You could have done something. Verse 28 says, so take the bag of gold from him. Give it to the one who has 10 bags. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in that parable. We maybe will never completely understand everything. But I think for us to consider a moment to go back that Jesus, remember, he's up on the Mount of Olives. He's talking to his disciples. His disciples are wondering, how are we supposed to live while we're waiting here and now, watching for you to return when you leave? And in many ways, that's our question too. We are living here and now, and we're waiting for that glorious day that we sung about just a moment ago. How are we to live here and now? And I think when we look at this parable, we can ask ourselves three questions. The first question I think is most important. How do I view God? And from that question, we ask two others. What has God actually given me, and what am I going to do with what he's given me? How do I view God? What has he given me, and what am I going to do with what he's given me? So the first two guys in the parable, right, they see the master much differently than the third guy. The third guy, he is terrified. He's accusing the master of being a hard man, and he's accusing him of being a thief. We find out basically it's because he's lazy and he's wicked. But the first two don't. The first two don't feel that way about the master. They are entrusted with even more money to manage. They've got a bigger job to do, and they're not feeling the fear. In fact, the master trusts all three of them with huge amounts of money. He's going to be gone for a long way. He's giving them trust. He's giving them honor. He's entrusting his wealth to them. The master rejoices when the first two come back. He's so joyous and so uh, uh, caring about his servants. He wants to give them more responsibility. He wants them to succeed. And then finally, we saw that the master sort of questioned the third guy. 
He says, do you really think I am this way? You say that I am. You say that I'm a harsh man and do all these things. And see, that's where this parable has often been used in the wrong way. It's often been used to just merely call out lazy people or something, and you better get to work, which kind of has a little bit of a place. But we need to take a step back and ask the question, how do I view God? How do I imagine him to be? How do my impressions of who God is shape my actions and my thoughts and my life here and now? Because when we imagine God to be primarily an enforcer of rules, well, then we get hung up in legalism of religion. When we visualize God as as stern and prone to punishment, then we become to see everything bad in our lives as a punishment from God. When we see God as arbitrary and capricious, that's when we experience a fickle and an unsympathetic God who meets our low expectations of him. We flip it around the other way. We get a little bit more like the first and the second servant. When we see God as loving, we find it easier to love ourselves and others. When we see God as gracious, we lead more grace-filled lives. When we see God as forgiving We live in the joy of being forgiven, and we live in the joy of forgiving others. We imagine and view our God to be God of love. We find it far more easier to experience his love in our own lives and share it with those around us. You see, it's pretty amazing when Jesus speaks this parable. He speaks this parable right before he is about to be handed over as we sang in that song, Glorious Day. Right before he's about to be handed over to be tried and to be crucified, to be whipped and to be mocked and to be hung on the cross, to give his life for the world. And that's where we see that the God that we see in Jesus Christ could in no way be described like the third servant has described him. Jesus, who died and rose for us, how could he be called a harsh God? How could he be called reaping where he did not sow? How could he be called gathering where he did not scatter seed? In Jesus, God always gives us more than we expect and more than we deserved, and he always gathers our offerings back in joy. So that question remains, how do I view God? Do I view him like the third servant? Do I view him like the first two? Do I view him as I imagine him out of my brokenness, or do I view him as he actually is in his power, his strength, his grace, in his mercy? We learn from the parable that he is generous, he is empowering, he is entrusting, he is joyous, he is honor-giving, and he wants to use us more and more for his mission. He wants there to be more than two baptisms. He wants there to be four. He wants there to be eight. He wants there to be 16. He wants there to be 100,000. He wants to see the world saved through us. How do I view him? What has he given me? Basically, he's given each of us two things. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 talks about the first thing. It is by grace you have been saved. He's given us salvation through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. He's given us the gift of salvation where everything's right with us and God. But then in verse 10, we Lutherans, we often forget about this. Verse 10 says this. Verse 10 says this. (laughs) 
<laughs> Verse 10 says this, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not only has God given us salvation, but he's given us a new life. New life in Jesus involves doing good things for other people. That new life in Jesus of doing good stuff, first we are given the gift of salvation, and then we're given a gift of life of doing good. Not doing good to get right with God. We're already right with God. We're doing good because we are right with God already. What are we going to do with the gift that he's given us? I think maybe that's for a way for us to start to think about the next month and a half. We're moving into Thanksgiving. We're moving into Advent. We're moving into Christmas and New Year's. It's just crazy, awesome, joy-filled time and maybe hard time as well. We all have been given the gift of salvation. We all have been given the gift of being created differently, uniquely, with different talents and gifts and experiences in Jesus. It's my prayer that over the next month and a half, we're not going to take those gifts, dig a hole and bury them deep and not use them. But let's take those gifts immediately and put them to work and see God multiply them. And we share in the master's joy together. What does that look like for us? Well, we got three things on our handout right here. Project 23, bring a coat, Operation Christmas Child, pack a box for some needy child elsewhere in the world. There's also the foster care celebration. Talk to Pastor Nathan. He's got 500 things that you could do to be a blessing to others. Maybe it's someone in your family that needs you. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's someone you're going to meet in the grocery store this afternoon that needs you to unpack that gift of the new life in Christ for them. It's my hope and it's my prayer that we will journey in that way together, that we will experience a gracious and empowering God, a master who has entrusted us with his mission of salvation and good works.